0: entrepreneurs, open businesses, whatever it may be, and they gain traction. They work hard, they're focused, and it gains traction, popularity, and money. And I think oftentimes entrepreneurs lose focus and they begin to focus on the money. And when you focus on money, you lose focus on product. And it's the most important thing you do. And even as we've grown, it took me 10 years, eight years to open a second store. Why? Because I didn't know how to move product and I wanted to perfect what we did and the product was so important.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor podcast. Today, I am very excited to have Norman Love, chef, chocolatier, and founder of the Norman Love Confections. Norman, thanks so much for joining us. Steve, good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Well, Norman, let's jump right into it here. What was your first job in hospitality?
0: I have to believe that uh, I had moved from Pennsylvania to South Florida, Hollywood, Florida, 1973. I was an ice hockey kid. I played a lot of ice hockey and dreamed of playing college hockey. And my family uh, father was relocated to Florida and those dreams were gone. So I was uh, a little miserable as a kid, young kid. I was 15 years old and trying to uh, search for a new direction in my life. And I went to a kitchen. And quite honestly, it was a Chinese restaurant I was 15 years old, I was making $1.50 an hour washing dishes, and I would ride my bike every day to five days a week from my home to the Chinese restaurant. And even remembering back then, the owner taking me aside and telling me, you're the best dishwasher we've ever had, you know, I would come in and I would get underneath the walks and I would clean the walls and I would clean, you know, I would just had this pride about and this passion about being in a kitchen and fascinated with Chinese Chinese kitchen, quite honestly, which, you know, as we talked this afternoon or this morning, I'll talk to you a little bit more about actually being in Hong Kong and some very professional kitchens that were so exciting for me. But it was the really the humble beginnings of learning discipline and learning the importance of of responsibility, you know, back there going, even though it was washing dishes and it was a high school part-time job, I did that for almost two years. And I moved to the ice cream business. They opened an ice cream parlor, Swenson's Ice Cream, which was a San Francisco-based company in Hollywood, even a shorter distance from my home. And I was able to be employed as the ice cream maker. And what a great job because I could come and go as please, as long as ice cream was there. They didn't care when I was there. And I would work inside a glass enclosure that was visible to the customers and with beakers and uh, lab coats. and I would be churning ice cream for Swenson's. And you know what I learned at an early age is that sweets, even back to grandma and and mom and and aunts in the kitchen door for holiday events, is that dessert made everyone happy. People got happy when they ate dessert. In fact, sometimes they even leave room from their main course so that they can enjoy and indulge in dessert. And what a great way to make people happy. And I think it really was some of the very first reasons that the dessert industry attracted me so much. I was making people happy. I could bring a cup of ice cream out from the batch freezer to maybe a little girl that or boy that was standing outside the window like a puppy with the nose against the window watching me make the ice cream, and how happy they got when you know they received this freshly churned ice cream. And I did that for quite a while, and uh, I began to really embrace the pastry, the sweets industry, because I loved art. Art was a big part of my life at an early age. And, you know, if you go back to the early 70s and you think about American cuisine back in the 70s, I think that we were still trying to discover what American cuisine was. You know, we could maybe say meat and potatoes or hot dogs and hamburgers. And there was only really a handful of really amazing restaurants in this country at that point. And desserts though, however, you had the ability to express art and express creativity at a higher level in my mind than perhaps a chef putting a steak and broccoli and you know something on a plate. And it's really what attracted me to, to the dessert industry. And I have to say that I have had an entrepreneurial spirit since a very early age. I've always had desires to own my own business and I've always been a very self-motivated individual, a guy that is embraces passionately and tirelessly I've embraced the pastry industry. And if we go back to the beginnings, I mean, Pinterest and Instagram, and they didn't exist. So how did you learn? You learn through travel, you learn through magazines because it wasn't so easy to share and, 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 uh, enjoy other professionals around the world's work that helped, you know, build creativity and ideas and directions for my own career. So it was, you know, an, an interesting beginning for me, I had a tremendous Focused work ethic, my father instilled in me. And I believe that even to this day, you know, the the commitment, a tireless effort to be better than yesterday has always been who I've been. And I've always strived to try to be a leader in this industry and to try to create newness. And coming up in the industry, I've obviously watched in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s how the pastry industry has evolved. And Having the ability with Ritz-Carlton to travel the world, you know, was an accelerated growth for me to be able to see so many different cultures and ingredients and cooking methods and ideas. You know, it certainly was a huge boost for my culinary career in the in the 90s and helped to really accelerate the growth and perhaps make me who I am today.
1: And I love that journey. I'm excited to get to more of that part. But I have a question. When you're in Swenson's, did you find yourself like creating your own flavors of ice cream and mixing and matching back there as you do now?
0: You know, it was so corporate structured that you had recipes for all the flavors. But, you know, even then, I mean, the pride I took in making ice cream and then eventually moved. I would flip flop uh, with the uh, the area where you produced all the ice cream sundays and the different frozen concoctions and enjoyed almost like a bartender in a sense that you were putting together ice cream sundaes and there was a one on sunrise boulevard that was so very busy there was one in carl gables there was one in fort myers excuse me i'm sorry in hollywood and for me it was just exciting to see people again making this beautiful artistry i took so much pride in making sure a parfait was layered properly and looked beautiful and then presenting it to the guests that you know they went you know, they went crazy. They, it made them happy. They enjoyed it. I even had a short stint at Jackson's ice cream. Now I I don't know if you know, I know Jackson's Yeah, on federal highway. I spent some time there, which was again, just one of the most fun jobs. So busy, so crazy busy, but how much I enjoyed working on the line of creating these crazy large, you know, uh, uh, Frozen concoctions that you know people really stood in line for hours to to get in so it was it was two yeah, really fun. I remember going
1: yeah, I remember going to Swenson's and Coral Gables my dad and mom used to take us I had two younger brothers and we would enjoy that every single time yeah. So it's it's a small world to know that you were part of that story So you're in high school you're doing these jobs, which the first job is not easy. The second job sounds like a lot more fun Uh, do you go to college and say, this is what I want to do Hey, this is what I want to do, dad. This is what I want to be as a pastry chef. Or did you go thinking you were going to do something else?
0: So I was, I was always, I always thought about wanting to be in the medical profession, a doctor or dentist. My uncle was a surgeon, uh, a dental, uh, a neurosurgeon, and always said that my hands, this artistic hands, I would make a great dentist. Problem was I never really had the discipline in school. I think the focus. So I did start the journey of going to college and I lasted less than one semester. And I never told my parents that I had left college. And I was asked by Swenson's to join the corporate office. I was just turning 18 years old. And I became part of uh, uh, the operations as they were expanding locations around the state. And I was the guy that was training and opening Swenson's around the state and troubleshooting through all their stores at 18 that went on for more than a year where my parents still thought I was in college at pre dental. <laughs> and once they found that, obviously they weren't super happy with me, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm very fortunate that the story worked out okay for me. And you know, I followed uh, my passion and uh, I don't remember how long I lasted a couple of years with Swenson's. And uh, I then took my first job in a pastry shop, which was actually in Deerfield beach at a, uh, at a, uh, the intercoastal and a restaurant that was there, I don't know if it's still there, called Pal's Captain's Table. And it was a, I don't know, 2000 covers a night restaurant on the water. And they had this massive sea chest and the sea chest was the dessert station, I guess, which was included in all the meals and uh, a very busy restaurant. It was a Welsh pastry chef who had such incredible fundamentals and was instrumental in helping me to start my career in the pastry bakery world, I remember driving from Hollywood to Deerfield Beach to start work at 6 a.m. And my first job for quite a while was making pumpernickel onion pumpernickel rolls, opening dehydrated onions bucket. That smell at 6 a.m. But you know what's fascinating to me is though is is that the smell of fresh fresh baked products today after. I don't know, 45 years still really excites. It still never gets old. The smell of fresh bread or fresh croissant or, oh my gosh, it still. Makes me excited about the profession that I'm in and that I have devoted my entire life to so, but this Welsh pastry chef really was instrumental in helping me just fundamentals. And it was American style desserts, but he was such a technician. And it was a terrific way for me to begin my career and uh, and begin to learn the fundamentals of, of baking and pastry. So
1: was, was that the first true pastry kitchen? Because it's one thing to be making ice cream, right, at Swenson's, and then you get to a restaurant where you have to hit orders, and they're coming out and make sure everything's full. Was that the first time that you were really like, wow, this is a different world?
0: It was, and it was a really busy restaurant. And the pastry shop, as I said, I think it was inclusive in all the dinners. So you got a slice or a piece or something every guest. So thousands of desserts. So. It was quite busy in prepping so much cake and pastries, bread. They did all the bread in-house. It was quite an operation. And uh, yeah, it was a real shocker for me. And then I I had an opportunity to uh, apply to uh, the Culinary Institute of America. And I was put on a 13-month wait list. At that point, I still had desires, I think, I thought, to be a chef, to be a savory chef. And I was given an opportunity. Turnberry isle was opening their yacht and racket club. This is 1980. And the yacht club was the one in the back and it was an all French kitchen. And I was given an opportunity while I was waiting to go to the culinary Institute to work in an all French kitchen, very classic kitchen. When they first opened, I mean, copper, Garadon's, bouquetier, very classic. Sol was very classic, but the chefs were unbelievable. It was a eye opener to me to be included in a European kitchen very different from pal's captain's table, extremely formal and very disciplined kitchen. I didn't speak a lot of French, so I didn't know if they were firing, they were ordering. I was very lost, had band-aids all over my fingers. I was the assistant vegetable guy and learning to turn vegetables and working on the line. And I realized in a short period of time that this wasn't for me and that I love desserts. I wanted to make desserts. I didn't want to work on the on the line. And um, they hired an Italian pastry chef who him and I became, even to this day, we still talk, almost a father figure. And it was my first exposure to European dessert. And I worked- Let's give him a shout out. Who? What's his name? Nando Petroni.
1: Nando Petroni, sounds like an Italian pastry chef to me. Yeah.
0: and. Uh, We worked together for two years. I think the first year or more, I worked for free. I would come in in the morning, work with him all day, go downstairs and change, and then work on the hotline because they didn't have a budget for more than one pastry person at the yacht club back then. So I spent a year, I I don't remember the exact time. This is 1980, not 81, and uh, I learned a lot. I learned that every day, I couldn't wait to get back to work to make desserts. It was in the back of a kitchen. It was not like a prep area. It wasn't a real pastry shop, sharing a refrigerator with the cooks, which is never a good thing for pastry. (laughs) But, you know, these were really the beginnings for me and my first exposure to European style dessert, which obviously was a very different animal to American style desserts back then.
1: So so for us, for the listeners here, what's the short difference that when you saw it there?
0: I think that, you know, the sweetness, first of all, obviously the style of presentation, you know, in France, entremets, small cakes that are, you know, multiple textures and, you know, Americans, we grew up on, you know, carrot cake and uh, red velvet cake and chocolate cake and coconut cream pies and things that are tall and usually overly sweet and also sometimes full of artificial ingredients and, you know that they're not as i think there's not as uh, as much finesse and as enough emphasis on the quality ingredients and italian pastry is a very different breed from other parts of europe as i once i i learned later in my career but it was fascinating for me to have the ability to work with nando for all those years and and actually stay friends for oh my gosh 40 years now 50 years no so,
1: that's amazing yeah. so as you're you're going through turnberry we've had a couple of chefs that have been there. Chef Alan Sussor I think, went through Turnberry too. Were you, were you in the same kitchen with him at that time? Because it was around that
0: time. So let me tell you a quick story. So Alan and I, uh, Alan was the butcher, and I was a pastry cook, line cook, when we opened. In fact, I was there before Alan. I think Alan might have come right after. I can't remember the timing. But Alan and I are dear friends. We have been friends for a really long time. And then, of course, Alan opened Chef Alan's, and I was there opening night. And uh, that's a, a wonderful story. And you know, an incredible success uh, story of a chef who also very passionate, extremely philanthropic and has really helped to support the entire Floribian movement as one of the pioneers in in South Florida.
1: He's excellent. And listeners, if you haven't heard that podcast, go back and listen to Chef Alan Sussex. He talks about working in that kitchen. So it's a small world that Chef Norma was in there too. So you continue on through Turnberry. How much, when do you start transitioning? Cause you're there through the eighties. It sounds like, when do you start transitioning out of there and getting into Ritz Carlton?
0: Well, I got married and I moved to Los Angeles. So I was, oh, wow. at the time, Big before I moved to Los Angeles, I was working at Mayfair house in oh, wow. Grove, yep. beautiful hotel owned by the DeBartolo family. And if you recall, there was a pastry shop in the mall, the pastry shop was owned by the hotel so we had a retail operation and then i would have to take the banquet desserts and outlet desserts through the through the hall the, the mall through a side door through the kitchen down the elevator through the parking garage to the ballroom so it was quite the challenge i spent a a couple years there 85 i think is when i worked there if i remember and in 87 i was given an opportunity to become the pastry chef at the beverly hills hotel and I spent uh, almost three years there. You know, it was a hotel that was going through transition. I felt as a American chef, very hungry for learning, that a lot of the progressiveness in the culinary world was happening in California. This is even before Miami started. You know, you had the Robin Mm -hmm. Haases and the Norman Van Aikens and Allen and others, Doug Rodriguez. I mean, we all grew up in this time in Miami and it was just starting you know, in the eighties and not really the the
1: mango gang right?
0: and not really well recognized yet. So I decided to pick myself up and got married and drove across the country and worked at the Beverly Hills hotel, trying to learn and uh, embed myself in a progressive environment of ingredient and, uh, you know, culinary cutting edge environment. And I spent a few years there and I had an opportunity. I had a son, And it was expensive for a young couple to live in Los Angeles. And I wanted to join Ritz-Carlton. I had been given an opportunity in the Ritz-Carlton St. Louis, I think it was the ninth hotel in the company. So the company was very in its, in its beginnings, a very small company, extremely intimidated when I, when I moved there, am I worthy? Do I have the skills? And I spent uh, almost a year in St. Louis, opened that hotel. And the Ritz-Carlton Naples, Ritz-Carlton Laguna Niguel were their two flagship five-star hotels. And they asked me to move back to Florida to take over the pastry shop at the Ritz-Naples. So- Were you excited about that? You're like, all right, get to go back to Florida? I was excited to go to a more prominent, I think a a city hotel that did a huge amount of of social business in St. Louis, but go to a five-star hotel, one of the leading hotels in the company. know florida was secondary to me it was fine that i went back to florida i'm not sure it would have been my first choice but it was my profession we had had a a little girl so our second child so we all moved and this is in 1990 in 90 and um i began my career really my career after i guess a year uh with the ritz naples and ritz carlton was on a huge growth spurt they were opening hotels primarily domestically and The corporate chef, Henry Boubet, at this time, I don't know if I was just in the right place at the right time or I had a style that they really loved, this young American pastry chef that had this artistic expression and creativeness on plates that they asked me to help open hotels. And I started opening hotels and I would kill myself before I left the Ritz-Naples, I don't know how many hours. I mean, a million hours opening a hotel for all those listeners that have opened a hotel. You know what I'm talking about. I've opened 38 hotels in my career.
1: Wow, I've done three, and that's yeah, enough. For one me. is,
0: enough, I think, <laughs> almost, Yeah, it can be very painful, as we all know, but always exciting, and especially internationally, it was amazing. But uh, I saw the world, and I began to come back to the Ritz Naples, and I would get a lot of crap from my chef. Where were you? And, you know, you shouldn't be going and the corporate chef would argue with the executive chef and I need him. And all of a sudden I'm in the middle, killing myself at my property and off the property. And eventually I said, listen, guys, I gotta make, we gotta, we gotta do something here. Either I'm going to work at the Naples hotel or I'm going to become part of the corporate office, which Joe Franey, who was a regional vice president back then for Ritz-Carlton, was really uh, instrumental in helping the corporate office and my corporate chef and vice president of food and beverage for me to to gain that position and then became officially responsible for the entire pastry and baking operation for all Ritz-Carlton.
1: That's amazing. So, you know, we see so many books and they teach about Ritz-Carlton in hospitality schools, And you were there. Was it truly like that of what everyone says it was like this magical company that the guest was first and it's ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen? Was it because very different now from where it was? What was it like when you were there?
0: You know, it was a small family. Obviously, Horst Schultze, who, you know, is if not the number one hotelier in the world or was, developed that brand and starting that and being part of that small family with those philosophical values, I still joke and say, I think I still bleed blue because, and I've been out of Ritz-Carlton for almost 22 years, but the philosophical values still are in, are instilled in my soul about product and service. You know, the financials were third. It was always a providing, you know, a level of service that exceeded the expectation of guests. Because when guests checked into Ritz's, they knew it was expensive. There was no hiding that. But when you check into a Ritz and you're spending whatever today, I mean, it's thousands of dollars a room, you have an expectation of a product, of a service. And if you exceed that, you create loyalty in a customer. And loyalty is forever. And everything you heard about Ritz Carlton was true. You know, It was about ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. It was about redefining the luxury hotel business and providing levels of service, in fact, providing the service before the guest ever asked for it so if you I of course Schultze used to always say if you checked in the San Francisco and you liked rocks in your pillow and chocolate chip cookies by your bed they were able to track you Steve so that when you checked in the Naples the rocks in your pillow and the chocolate chip cookies were already by your bedside before you ever asked and this level of service at that time was unmatched by anyone and it really redefined. I think the luxury hotel business, Four Seasons was a great product. The Peninsula and the Mandarin, I think, were starting to, to penetrate in the United States market. But it was the Ritz and it was Four Seasons back in the 90s that were really the, the, you know, the, the leaders of, of Luxury Hotel. And I happened to be really fortunate and blessed to be in the middle of it as it grew. And I visited, I mean, everywhere. Japan Indonesia Malaysia Singapore Japan Japan Korea all over the Middle East and and Europe and and of course North America to have the ability to travel as a pastry chef and learn and experience you know I'm in Bali it's not like you can snap your fingers They need you know a bucket of glucose it's not coming
1: you know, so mm-hmm. we can
0: get that another month from now and learning to be innovative and learning to be flexible and learning to to be creative, but still maintain standards of the Ritz-Carlton in each of those cultures was an incredible opportunity for a culinarian with, you know, great experience to, uh, you know, to, to work with the local team and understand and learn the flavors of those cultures and be able to then transform those flavor profiles into a Ritz-Carlton experience on the plate.
1: And how would you do that across the globe? Because like you said, you were growing so quickly and you were in charge of the pastry profile for the entire luxury company that everyone looks up to. How are you able to kind of do that and control the standards across the globe?
0: Well, it starts with leadership team, right? And, you know, I think the pastry chef, I was almost like a consultant, if you will. You know, you go into an establishment, you're only as good as the team you're leaving there, right? So it would be my job. To hope first identify the pastry chef that's going to be hired. Hopefully, they could be uh, uh, a homegrown. You know, they have come from you know growing from within. And if not, making sure that we interview properly and find the right candidate, and then put them in one of the existing hotels to help them understand some of the values and understand the standards. But if I was starting from it with with a, a a brand new chef, it was a painful exercise. It was hard um, because the amount of work and commitment to provide the level of standards and quality that was necessary. And by the way, pastry was the only department that touched every single department in the hotel. And we had a lot to do. And you start with zero and then you start to ter- stir in some of the fun things like, oh, I don't know. The freezer goes out for two days yeah. you know, or <laughs> I'm in Hong Kong and sewer starts coming up, you know, because the building was vacant for two or three years before we took it back over for some delays. So there was always challenges adversity, and I think it just made me stronger, it made me better, it made me understand how to pivot, you know, in a very crazy business during a crazy time, I was like opening, and get the end results. You know, I had amazing experiences in Japan, I spent nearly a month in Tokyo, benchmarking this incredible level of dessert in Tokyo, because it was the first hotel that was going to have a retail store in Osaka, gorgeous hotel, beautiful hotel. And um, I spent uh, almost three months in Japan and we created a retail store that was mind-blowing. I mean, truly mind-blowing. I had to visit some locals, pastry makers and bakers. And it's a whole ceremonial thing, meeting the father and uh, the son and having this tea ceremonial to become accepted before they would sell to you, because I was afraid that if we were so busy, maybe we wouldn't be able to keep up. So let's get a secondary source if we need it. So I was out as pastry chef, corporate chef, you know, drinking tea and breaking bread with like a local guy that's maybe going to do financier and madeleine for me because maybe we couldn't do it or bonbons or what have you. The store had to close four hours after it opened because they sold the entire store out. The line was wrapped around the building outside. So it was, you know, I mean, times that are so humbling and so much appreciation for all the work that we do during an opening or within the hotel business or within pastry operations, just to make sure that the work is better than yesterday.
1: Now, this is a question for me, just because I want to visit Japan so badly. But, you know, I watched the the movie on Netflix, Jiro Dreams of uh, Sushi. Was it like that in the culinary world, too, or it's like generations and they try to perfect what they're doing
0: there? Steve, I can tell you this is probably one of the most memorable moments so the Hanshing family, if I have pronounced that correctly, they own a professional baseball team and they're a department owner. The hotel was adjacent to, and these were the owners, the Hanshing family. And in the bottom floor of the department store, normal department store, you know, six, seven, eight, ten 10 floors is a Toys R Us for the food enthusiast. And I, I mean, a wall of every beer you've ever seen in the world, a wall of every tea that's known to man. A counter, they're making every dumpling you've ever seen sushi and beef and produce. And I mean, I would go down there and spend hours wandering aimlessly in awe of the raw ingredient. So I remember coming across a cantaloupe in a little oak box, $80. And I thought to myself, cantaloupe, 80 bucks. This, this is in the 90s. I have two. Yeah. I have to buy this cantaloupe because how could they charge $80 for this cantaloupe, Mm -hmm. the absolute best product I've ever put in my mouth, or you buy strawberries and every strawberry is exactly the same packaged. When you get them in the, in the kitchen, everyone, exactly the same pointing in the same direction, like babies with blankets on them or every herb or just unbelievable quality of raw ingredient. That was amazing to me. And the other was, the team it took a long time the japanese are you know an interesting culture language barrier was hard but we talk with our hands we talk with our skill and with that you break a shell you break you know into into the the relationship and create a very strong even to this day i get christmas cards we're going back 20 some years from some of the initial team that uh, was in in osaka and i remember setting up the cases the day before we opened, so everyone knew what we needed to do. I mean, there was hundreds of products. There was confections, there were bakeries, there were breads, there were packaged products like biscottis and madeleine and and canelè and things like that, and then cakes and pastry, massive amounts. And they sat down in front of the case, the team, after working tirelessly for a weeks to get ready, and they sketched every dessert with every decor, exactly the position that they should be presented, And when we came in the morning, set up the case, like they had been doing it for years. And if there is a characteristic, uh, and discipline of the Japanese is that they are incredible in following and taking the direction and replicating to the exact detail. And for a chef to have a team that's so disciplined like this and clean oh my gosh i'm a clean crazy clean chef to begin with it's not possible to create excellence without a clean organized kitchen but to have a team that understands that it was a uh, i think if i had to push rewind in car- my career i think japan is where i probably would go to to start my career or to work to enjoy the level of raw ingredient the quality of pastry and confections second to none today in the world maybe france is you know equal but the Japanese have really, uh, some of the shops in Tokyo are mind-boggling of how beautiful and how delicious the products are.
1: Gosh, listeners. All right. We're booking our trip. We're going to go with Norman. He's taking us to Japan. We'll, we'll make this happen. So I appreciate you telling us that story. It, it got me excited to, to go there. Look, so you have a tremendous run here at the Ritz-Carlton. You're there 11 years. You're the global executive pastry chef. On all accounts, you're killing it. And then you make a change. What happens?
0: So in 1999, I was, well, in 98, I was given the opportunity to captain the World Cup pastry team, United States World Cup pastry, the Coupe de Mont in Lyon. And obviously, it was a huge honor for me. And for those um, uh, listeners, it is a uh, competition that takes place before the Bocou store. And it's the biggest stage for pastry chefs, a makeshift kitchen, nine hours. At that time, it was an ice carving, chocolate centerpiece, sugar centerpiece, frozen dessert, entremet and plated dessert, nine hours. You can bring ingredients. That's it. And biscuit baked, at least at that time. I was the chocolate guy. I had two teammates, one that lived uh, at Ritz-Carlton in Shanghai, Eric Perez, and uh, uh, a young lady who was working in New York, Kim O'Flaherty, who did the ice. uh, uh, Eric did the sugar and I did the chocolate. And big day at the office, a year and a half of preparation. incredible amounts of money to move back to France and uh, prepare yourself for the biggest global competition in the world. We were fortunate to finish on the podium third place, 10 points from Belgium, which was, we thought a huge accomplishment we think, and I still think, but it was a huge day at the office. I came back from the world cup and a friend, a gentleman um, from New York, who was instrumental in my career owned a magazine called Chocolatier magazine. And he and I believed like Wimbledon, the French Open, US Open, there could be another pastry competition in the world because the Coupe de Monde was the only one of its kind. They gave away 9000 euros, it was $9,000 approximately at that time. And we felt if it was a huge commitment, we felt if we gave away big prize money, you would get all the Michael Jordans of the world that found the excuse not to compete. And we began our journey in Beaver Creek, Colorado. TV Food Network televised the second year. It was the warmest day in the history of the farmer's almanac. And it was in an outside ice rink in June that they, the management team said at Beaver Creek that if we put on the compressors, it would stay icy cold. Well, they forgot to tell us the compressors were broken and it was the warmest day so needless to say we had contestants from around the world and uh show pieces you know were falling and tv food network was televising this and the more they fell the more excited they got and the more upset i got because here i am as a very high level professional experiencing the coupe de monde and trying to elevate if you're going to have a national or global competition, then give the contestants the ability to be as good as they can be. Give them the facilities and everything. Don't restrict them. And obviously this was the one thing that we didn't control. But what we learned was the TV Food Network that uh, consumers love to watch pastry chefs and makeshift kitchens doing their thing, which spun off to a show called The Challenge. And this was the real reason I left Ritz-Carlton re-engage with my family who I didn't know because I traveled so many weeks a year, months at a time, and developing a global competition. We moved now to Las Vegas, to the Rio Hotel. I incorporated a five-day educational symposium. I brought the Michael Jordans in every category, the sugar guy, the chocolate guy, the ice cream guy, the entremé guy, the petit gâteau guy, the confection guy. And in 10 classes, students with two classes per day I mean, you had Albert Adria teaching, you know, water in one of the classes and MOFs teaching different aspects of pastry, and then entry into the world championship, making it the most comprehensive week of dessert in the world. And we gained a lot of traction in a hurry. And TV Food Network's ratings became number one. It actually beat Emerald, took essence of Emerald out, and the challenge became the number one t- television show.
1: Bam, got him. <laughs> So, you, how did you convince people to come? Were you paying them to come be teachers, or was it just the award, or was it your title you had at Ritz-Carlton that convinced so many people to come? I had
0: global contacts because I was always involved in recruiting, you know, and and trying to uh, create relationships, whether it's for purchasing directives or what have you. So I knew a lot of people in the industry. You no, know, we paid the instructors and students paid for uh, for attending, and we had hundreds and hundreds of students that were coming because back. You know at this time uh in the early 2000s it was pastry was growing chefs were hungry for education extended education and we were putting the world's best in front of them for demos twice a day for five days and it was pretty exciting and it was it was really the the beginnings of i went home we we, we executed the first one and we started to hear The world was talking about this competition. We gave away $125,000 in prize money. So all the Michael Jordans wanted to play. And I was nervous. I was sitting in a 600 square foot friend owned a medical building with Jazzy twos on the wall and a desk I put in. We had offices in New York and offices in Las Vegas. And um, I was concerned. I left corporate America. I left probably the biggest corporate pastry chef job. And I have a family. And I'm diving into the production world that I knew nothing about. And long story short, I started making chocolates in my office and peddling them from Marco Island to Tampa, but with a really clear direction. Because when you open the box of La Maison du Chocolat or Whitman sampler, they look the same to me. And why couldn't that element of surprise, that artistic expression that existed in the dining room, exist in a box of chocolates? So although I did not create the technique that was used for decor and entremet and show pieces and things, chocolate centerpieces, I was the first to put it on chocolates. And my friends around the world gave me a load of crap. They, you know, Norman, you can't put red or green on chocolate, but this is American chef making chocolates for the American consumer. And Americans love to eat with their eyes. The Ritz taught me that. Just make it using the best ingredients, make it fresh make it true artisanal. And when you open the box, it's wow, they look like jewels. They look like jewelry. Hence the shape of our box has always been a jewelry box for that purpose. And, um, that's the beginnings of Norman love confection.
1: Well, I want to get to this part because this is where everything kind of changes. So you're producing the show you're in your office, you're working on the show that goes, I think till about 2004. Why start making these chocolates? Was it just like for some friends asked for a party or you had a very specific plan thinking, all right, I'm going to start making chocolates and I'm going to start selling these to some of the people I know. How did that part happen? Cause there's a lot of people that have these dreams of I'm going to start this. It was, what was it for
0: you? Supplementing my income. I was nervous about the steady income that stopped. And I'm now involved in a production. We were making some money. We were starting this company. We were gaining some traction, but I had two kids and I'm in my forties now. And what are you doing? So I, uh, I that's that's how I began making chocolates because of all my contacts around the country, and I had no idea how to ship chocolate. I'm in Florida; mm-hmm. it's 120 yeah. degrees in a UPS truck. How could you possibly put a box of chocolates on? It would melt instantly. Mm-hmm. And one day I received a insulated, temperature-controlled carton in, from the pharmacy in the building that a friend's building that I worked in, and they were receiving you know, very sensitive, like I think chemotherapy drugs. And this was this high-tech biodegradable insulated carton. And there was a name and a telephone number on the bottom of the box, because I had no idea how to ship chocolate. And um, I called the guy, he was in Georgia. And uh, we talked, he said, yes, we manufacture this insulation for blood and plasma, organs, very temperature sensitive things. I said, can I send you a box of chocolates? He said, of course, and it made it. And obviously revolutionized my company, to allow me to wholesale my chocolate nationwide with great success. So that was a big pivotal point in the in the chocolate career. Godiva knocked on our door. They were looking to rebrand. They were losing market share. They saw this new artisanal product, famous pastry guy, well-recognized. Would you like to make chocolates for us? And I was, no, I'm in the production business. I'm just supplementing. I was dabbling in chocolate. I didn't right. be in the chocolate business. I was trying to rejoin my family.
1: Now, we're, at this time, were you have a store where you're selling chocolates or is it just online and like word of mouth? This is early 2000s, well, so this is not the like
0: Internet we know we today. Yeah. Internet, I think maybe we did, but I, I was working yeah. on, a, on a website. I didn't have a credit card machine. I used to send the people. I was in a little office, 600 square foot, part of a medical building in a very isolated area off the beaten path with no signage. And I would send people <laughs> to a gas station a couple miles away to the ATM <laughs> to get cash. I didn't even have a box 9 11 I was at a bakery show in Vegas at September 11th looking for packaging. I had no idea how to, you know, what am I going to put it in? How I was giving people like a bag of chocolates. They would come in. Do you like these? And I would like hand them all these chocolates to taste. And people were finding me once that USA Today article came about, they named me the top 10 places to make to, for Valentine's day, in January, late January of 2002, I started in, quietly, October of 21.
1: So how does that happen? Did you have a PR agent helping you? Or was it just like word of mouth? You sent some chocolates
0: to the writers? Still puzzling to me. Still puzzling how that all happened. Wow. And the phone never stopped ringing. My wife was a dental assistant. And I'm like, you know, I think you need to Listen. help me here. I don't know. I, I The phone doesn't stop ringing. And people were finding me. Pilots were getting off the airplane. With the newspaper under there, I'm looking for this supposed top 10 chocolate shop in Fort Myers, Florida, that really was under the radar, just trying to supplement income dabbling in chocolate. It's a really true story. Eventually, That's amazing. Godiva...
1: So when does it start taking shape? So oh, Sorry to cut okay, you off no, here.
0: Godiva started to wear me down and I eventually mm-hmm. um, agreed to make uh, 350,000 pieces out of that small space. I got another refrigerator. We put walk-in refrigerator and freezers in back of the medical building, another stainless steel table. And I recruited some staff from Naples and we made a line called G and 11 Neiman Marcuses and 11 of their A doors. And for Christmas back in, I think, 02. And it was the biggest success at that time and new release of product. So they came back to me and said, it was, you know, huge Ooh. success. Will you make uh, 1.3 million? No, I'm not in the chocolate business. Built a factory, bought land, and today I've been in the chocolate business for 22 years now. We have 150 employees, two factories, pastry bakery, gelato, six retail stores, a very active e-commerce corporate corporate sales selling gifting uh, to corporations, uh, hospitality across the country, and then bulk chocolates too directly to hospitality. That you know many pastry chefs within the industry, it's an area that either they don't have the staff or the proper equipment. That they purchase confections from the outside. So that's uh, four main revenue streams in our business, with a huge growth today focused on not just e com but retail and East Coast. We're coming to the East Coast. We are actually discussing the lease right now. First one will be on in uh, off of Okeechobee in uh, the Palm, Palm Gardens, uh, Palm Beach Gardens area. But we'll work our way all the way to the south to Naples. We want to be in you know North. Uh, I said, Naples, forgive me, Miami, North Naples, uh, North Miami, excuse me, South Miami, Lauderdale, Boca, Del Rey are all areas that we're focusing on.
1: I know that you'll, you'll do fantastic. And it's just amazing to hear how this side hustle that you see so many articles about, like start your side hustle actually became what you're doing now full time. And I wanted to just make a mention for listeners, go on the website and see the detail that he puts into the box. He's talked about the jewelry box and the look of the chocolates. How did you come up with that? How did you come up with that feel for what it is today?
0: It's a good question. I always just, you know, I being a chocolate guy and I leaned to chocolate early on because sugar was so difficult in Florida. The humidity, you know, you, you spend all this time pre, uh, creating beautiful sugar artistry and by tomorrow it's uh, liquid, a uh, sticky and falling apart. So I always lean to chocolate and perfected chocolate. And guess what? No matter where I was in the world, It was always the most well-received dessert people love chocolate it's very it's not very often that you find somebody that doesn't like chocolate you know not because of you know allergy or diet restrictions but really doesn't like chocolate so i dedicated my life to heavy menu chocolate items in so many different varieties and that's how it all began i don't know the artistry was about opening a box like i explained earlier And putting this element a surprise. So, you know, having the ability to work with chocolate and color chocolate, it was, you know, how I I first approached wanting to create this artistic expression. Almost faux finish was a big um, inspiration reading faux finishing books. I know nothing about faux finishing, but learning to take up, put color, take off, put more color, and creating all these various techniques. Home Depot was my friend, you know, or Michael's Art Store. You know you walk through and try to find tools and things that you could create you know new artistry this is in the very beginnings obviously airbrushes were were a big part of it yeah
1: i love it and so i became to know your product without knowing you and so i always that's why i was so excited to talk to you Is i was working at mandarin oriental on in miami on brickle key five star five diamond hotel and we'll give her a shout out here ellis vanderberg was our purchasing uh director And when I started there, in the middle of my restaurant was the display. It looked like a jewelry box of chocolates. Beautiful. And people from all over the city would come to get these chocolates. And I remember my first day, I was like, what are these? Oh, this is Norman Love Chocolates. Everyone's coming to get them. And I remember it was just people would come every day and then especially holidays to fill up on these beautiful jewelry boxes filled with chocolates. So it's awesome to be able to talk to you about it now and just seeing how I was tasting them in 2009 and ten. Uh, way back then. So I've known you through your food since then. So, you know, I always appreciate you doing what you're doing. So now tell us about, you've told us where you're looking to grow. What are you most excited about? I don't want to say in the next five years, but like the next 12 months, 24 months, what are you most excited about and what you're doing?
0: I think that we needed to go last year through a transition as we were struggling coming out of COVID. E-commerce had exploded and we were struggling to make enough chocolate. We were pushing over 6 million pieces, almost entirely made by hand. And We needed something needed to give. And being in the industry and many of the manufacturers and suppliers around the world, I had been exposed to a lot of things. And I did some more research and um, we did a purchase of uh, and a renovation in our chocolate factory to help build productivity, but never compromise the integrity of our product because it's just not who I am. It's never about how much. It has to be about how good, Steve, every day. And so we're able to make a lot more chocolate now, which now has given us opportunity to spread our wings. Retail, we've improved our e-commerce platform to Salesforce Commerce Cloud and are working through this past year and perfecting that, surrounding ourselves with you know, excellent digital marketing teams and social media teams, because I believe e-commerce is a very powerful, obviously, a very uh, the fastest growing area of our company. But we also believe that retail, because retail creates visibility and brand awareness. And with so many tourists in Florida that get exposed to your brand, go home, all roads lead to e commerce And this is a secondary way of helping to increase the sales in e-commerce. We did a huge expansion of our warehouse and fulfillment and shipping, res- uh, shipping and uh, packaging facilities. That's a 30,000 square foot facility where it used to be three. And uh, so we have room now. We've kind of spent a year in getting the infrastructure together. And now we're beginning to make a uh, an aggressive expansion in a number of different ways. You know, Bringing Yossi in as our corporate director of sales, we see so much opportunity, endless opportunities there. Uh, we feel like we have one of the sexiest, ba- better gifting products in our category. And I don't think we've even begun to tap the opportunities. So it's an exciting time to be in our company after all these years of trying to figure out things, right? As an entrepreneur, you know, it's trial and error. It's risk-taking. It's um, making a lot of mistakes and picking yourself up and fixing them, but it's the determination, it's the drive, it's the motivation. It's the continuous effort of a team, empowering them to be as good as they can be and giving them the resources and the tools to get the job done and This has been my philosophy. I'm not a guy that's intimidated by somebody that knows more than me. I'm a guy that welcomes and tries to find people that are a whole lot smarter than I am in their respective areas and allow them to do their job. And that's how you build a foundation of an organization. So I'm very proud today to be part of this company and 150 wonderful uh, family members, really, that come to work every day with a purpose. They come to work every day to be excellent.
1: I love hearing that. And listen, I appreciate the time you spent with me today, but I do have one last question for you. So you truly have been around the world. You've seen more than most, and you've been part of, you know, one of the most iconic hotels, companies, and you've built your company into this brand that is just a juggernaut. But if you had somebody joining your team today, and it was young Norman who just finished his stint working as a dishwasher, was joining your team today, what advice would you give him?
0: I think it's, for me, it's an easy, it's an easy question. It's an easy answer. I think quite often, Steve, entrepreneurs, open businesses, whatever it may be, and they gain traction. They work hard, they're focused, and it gains traction, popularity, and money. And I think oftentimes entrepreneurs have often lose focus and they begin to focus on the money. And when you focus on money, you lose focus on product. And it's the most important thing you do. And even as we've grown, it took me 10 years, eight years to open a second store. Why? Because I didn't know how to move product and I wanted to perfect what we did. And the product was so important. I didn't want to be one of those chefs that have a great first store and the second store is average. You know, so oftentimes restaurants and things that happens because you don't have the management, you don't have the control. You haven't, you haven't established the processes to ensure that it's as good as the first store. So I think it's the focus on product and the focus on quality that is and never should be compromised. That would be my suggestion. Make the best, because if you make it better than everyone else, you reduce the competition. God, that's great
1: advice. Listen, you got to rewind that that last minute, I think, is great advice for any company and any brand. Well, Norman, I appreciate you taking the time with us today. I'm grateful to have spent this time with you and actually get to to spend this hour with you. Where can people connect with you if they would like to connect with
0: you? Listen, normanloveconfections.com. You can find me or Norman at normanloveconfections.com. I look forward to any of your listeners that may have questions or want to come visit. I would look forward to that. And Steve, the next time you're on the East Coast, I can't wait to meet you.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. And listeners, go check out his website. I promise you, you won't go wrong ordering a box for yourself. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.